Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, our guests are Chicago member Lee Lochnane and engineer Tim Jessup, here to talk about their work in restoring the music for the new Chicago at Carnegie Hall Complete. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rhino Podcast. We are joined by our good friend, John Hughes. And John, today we've got a heater for everybody. We've got an original Chicago member, Lee Lochnane, and their engineer, Tim Jessup, here to talk about the work they did restoring the audio for the new Chicago Carnegie Hall Complete. It's an amazing story. I mean, the foresight, uh, because a lot of this stuff, you know, just from history is disposable back then. I think like the first 10 years of of The Tonight Show were wiped because no one thought they would ever have any need for them ever again. So, right. yeah, it's yeah. good for them. It was harder to archive things back in the day because it was physical reels of tape yeah. or film. If you didn't have a refrigerated uh, <laughs> a room or you know a temperature-controlled environment, you just kind of had to leave it on a shelf and hope it survived. I know, but the, the stories these guys tell about what they had to do to really bring out the fine detail and make these recordings sound as good as they have made them sound is really, it's, it's, it's amazing what technology can do for music these days. Oh, agreed, agreed. But that's certainly not the only new release we have to discuss. We have some other great new releases to tell folks about. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I love this because this just speaks to my alternative college rock 80s heart, and that's The Replacements, the deluxe edition of Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash. Could yeah. you ever imagine this album was going to have a deluxe edition when it came out? <laughs> I know a lot of friends from college especially, this was their favorite album. They're going to be so stoked to hear what the extras are. Oh, for sure. For sure. This is a four CD, one LP collection that has more than 60 unreleased studio and home recordings, including the band's first demo and their earliest professionally captured concert. We're celebrating the 40th anniversary of Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash this fall. And it's out of the 100 tracks, 67 of those have never been released before. And there's a newly remastered version of the original album, plus many unreleased rough mixes, alternate takes, and demos from the band's first 18 months together. The LP included in the set, titled Deliberate Noise, presents an alternate version of the original album using these previously unreleased tracks. And not only that, there's Rhino.com exclusive bundles, including one that includes uh, I'm in Trouble 7-inch, a bumper sticker, a button set, a repo flyer, plus there are even t-shirt and and even cassette bundles if you want it on cassette. All of these bundles, yeah, all of these are available for pre-order now exclusively only at Rhino.com, and it's going to be out October 22nd. A lot of replacements fans looking forward to this one for sure. Yes, Another one that everyone's looking forward to is Black Sabbath's Technical Ecstasy Super Deluxe Edition. This is a four CD and five LP version of Black Sabbath's seventh studio album, and it features the original album newly remastered, a brand new mix of the album by Stephen Wilson, plus previously unreleased outtakes, alternative mixes, and live tracks. Now, this record reached 13 in the UK and was certified gold in the US. It's going to be available October 1st, as either a 4-CD set or a 5-LP set on 180-gram black vinyl. 
Both of these versions are available for pre-order now at, you guessed it, rhino.com. Comes out October 1st. Stephen Wilson, he's just everywhere these days, isn't he? But he is he is the go-to remixer. He does a fantastic job. He is ubiquitous for a reason. Uh, he's great at what he does. And I can't think of anyone that's dissatisfied with a Stephen Wilson remix. Well, John, thank you very much. Thank you, Rich. We'll see you next time. Well, Lee Lochning is an original Chicago member playing trumpet with the band since its beginning. He and engineer Tim Jessup have completed a mammoth project, restoring and remixing the recordings from Chicago's historic six-day, eight-show run at the world-famous Carnegie Hall in New York City. Those shows took place back in April of 1971, and at the time, the technology did not exist to treat the recordings the way you can today. They're now able to eliminate noise, bleed, phase issues resulting in a crystal-clear-sounding, massive 16-CD document of a band firing on all cylinders. This is vintage live Chicago like you've never heard before, all included in the new Carnegie Hall Complete. Good evening. Success. Success speaks for itself. And I'm Scott Muni, and I'm humbled to be on stage opening night at Carnegie Hall with Chicago. Tim Jessup, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Or Lee, welcome back in your case. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. having us back and uh, or having me back and Tim for the first time. Yeah, great, great to, to have you both. I mean, we've got this huge set coming out, Chicago Carnegie Hall Complete Deluxe Edition. And you guys have been just working nonstop on this. How long have you been working on this project to restore it? That was uh, April, I think you said, of 2019. That's when we started. That's yeah. when he started. We had 41 digital tapes that had been converted from the analog, original analog tapes to, to digital. Hard, hard drive. Yeah. To hard drive and yeah. then sent here. And then Tim went in and one tape at a time started peeling away the noises, various noises that mm -hmm. were inherent in the tape until we got down to actual notes that you could hear. Wow. 60 cycle hum and it's harmonics, air conditioning, all the things that come with a live recording, you know, uh, especially in Carnegie Hall. And then there were a lot of surprises along the way too, that also had to be uh, hmm. restored. Well, let's just go back a little bit and just talk about the band and where you guys were leading up to these shows. You know, Chicago 3 had just come out. You were touring in support of that, correct? Yes. Okay. And it had either just come out or was just going to come out. So we were at, at, at whatever level we were playing those songs as much as we could to get them to develop them, basically. Right. Sure. And if you look at this, well, when you folks get to look at the booklet that comes with this set, it's awesome. It's loaded with pictures and great info, but it has a list of all your tour dates in there and yeah. Lots of dates. oh my gosh you guys were road dogs i mean you probably didn't sleep in your own bed what two weeks in 70 and 71 we would come home for about three days and then leave for three months yeah it was continuous work what was it like to be in chicago at this time were you guys still just totally energized by it and excited or yeah, that's all we did. That's all we cared about was uh, playing the next show and uh, preparing before that for the next show. The rest of it was travel in between. We'd be out for three months just going everywhere under the sun. And then once we'd come home, we'd be home for like three days, not even get used to being there. And then we'd be gone again for months on end. When did you guys find time to write? I don't know. You'll have to ask the writers because I didn't actually start writing until the seventh album. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they managed time in between 
check into a hotel, lay down on the bed and go, hey, hmm. And then, you know, sit up and either grab a guitar or a keyboard or whatever it was they had in the room at the time. Yeah. And go. Yeah. Would you guys ever get together and have little jam sessions to work out ideas in the hotel rooms? I don't remember much of that, really. I think the writers pretty much put sketches of their songs together and then presented it either with some sort of uh, cassette that they played for us, or we'd wait until we got in the studio and just start working on songs. Yeah. Now this was your first live album. And had you been thinking about, Hey, maybe we ought to do a live album now. We, you know, we're, the band's really cooking. We're really well oiled. Was that no, a conscious thought? Very conscious at all. Really. <laughs> Other than playing songs, <laughs> playing music and, and practicing our instruments. That was, that's about all we had within us. And we just had a, a hell of a lot of energy and we just kept going from one place to another and Carnegie Hall was no different. We, it was just another part of an ongoing tour, but it was like, you know, back to the club days, we stayed there for six days, right? usually one nighter and then went directly to the next place. This was different. But you did eight shows in those six days. Two of the shows had matinees. I mean, you guys must like Everetti Bunnies. I mean, that's crazy. You must have had so much energy. What were those days like when you did the two shows? When would the first show start? Do you remember? The first show, I believe, was 8 o'clock. And then the, the, the second show was at midnight. Wow. Midnight <laughs> matinee. <laughs> that is crazy. So it wasn't even a matinee. Yeah, midnight. Yeah. <laughs> wow that's amazing so it really wasn't a the idea to record a live album it was more like you did this unprecedented run of shows at carnegie hall you sold it out you were the first rock band to do that many shows and sell it out by the way which is quite a feat and then then did the idea hey we ought to record this is that the way that the live album came around i think that it was already in the works but we were so busy working we weren't involved in any of those meetings okay I remember being involved in, we just came in and played and any preparations that had been done as far as this is going to be recording, uh, a recording, we're going to record all the shows and release it on vinyl. We're going to, you know, well, that's all there was back then. It was sure. vinyl. Yeah. Or eight tracks. Don't forget good old eight tracks. <laughs> oh yes. Eight tracks. My, my, Oh, I couldn't believe it. Listening to an eight track. I was always surprised when the song started fading out. What, the, what what's going on? I, it, it, it always shocked me. I mean, no matter how many times I listened to it, I hated eight tracks, as you might have guessed by now. Well, yeah, they would cut you off right in the middle of a song because it'd have to go to the next program, right? And then fade back in. Yeah. On the song. Mm -hmm. Come on. It's a buzzkill. You're right in the middle of the jam and what? I know. We're grooving, baby. Where are you going? Yeah. So how did you guys record it? The original recordings. First off, let's just talk about the sound of Carnegie Hall. And we know that Carnegie Hall was built before electric instruments were around. So it was designed for acoustic performances. Yes. Getting your stage sound together, never mind the recording, was it a really live room? Did you have to temper your sound at all to make the sound okay in there? We probably should have tempered our sound, but I don't think anybody did. I think they, we just went in and everybody played. And if... The producer who was who was also recording the dates had said anything about turning down, and everybody just sort of blew him off. I think. Yeah. And, you know, we just played as we normally mm -hmm. play, mm -hmm. and uh, Tim and I both know how difficult it was to edit out as much of Carnegie Hall as we could, so you could actually hear the the individual instruments, so you could actually turn it up without turning up Carnegie Hall with it. Mm -hmm. very difficult process and time consuming and you know labor of love <laughs> yeah yeah do you remember or tim maybe you know from looking at any notes do you remember what kind of tape machine they used or did they set up inside the venue or were there mobile trucks do you know anything about the history it would have been a beautiful thing if if there were mobile trucks in fact we we have worked with some of the other tapes from that era that were recorded via mobile truck such as Kennedy Center, and the recordings are gorgeous, they're beautiful. For whatever reason, at Carnegie Hall, the label decided to use 
the venue's own recording facility in the building really? somewhere on the upper floor. And so they brought in two 16-track, two-inch tape recorders. I don't know which brand of recorder they used. It could have been Ampex. It could have been Scully. And they recorded to Scotch 206 tape. That I can tell you for sure. And the shows were recorded simultaneously on two 16-track recorders. And the recorders were offset in their start time so that when the band was jamming away in the middle of a song and the tape on machine A would run out, then the B machine would pick up the end of the song. So later on, it could be edited back in and we could have complete recordings of all of the songs. And or the B machine would have the entire song, whereas the other mm-hmm. one had only a part of it. Yeah. Right, right, right. In most cases, that that is exactly... Uh, What happened in in my recollection, there were only three songs out of the entire 16 CD set that we actually had to assemble from two different reels. So we endeavored to to make sure that we had full performances of each song as much as possible. Yeah, that's a good way to go about it. So 16 tracks, you got seven members in the band. Did everybody get their own track as far as the horns go, Lee? I don't know. That's a Tim question, too. Because <laughs> by the time I saw it, it was spread out into many more tracks than we actually used. Yeah. I think we used eight tracks or, or maybe 16. Well, for for the uh, the horns, uh, fortunately, yes, each horn was recorded to its own track. But as Lee was just uh, alluding to, I mean, we took those 16 tracks and ultimately turned them into 42 tracks wow. spread across the console with all of the, the parallel compression tracks and that sort of thing that, you know, we were adding in to, to pump this all up and make it sound as big and as uh, present as possible. The drums were recorded to only four tracks. And that was an issue. That was a problem. We had a kick drum, a snare drum, and then we had drums left and drums right, which was all of the tom-toms, all of the cymbals, and essentially a stereo mix of the entire band in the overhead mic leakage, uh, which was about as loud as the drums were. We had corral that one. Tim, yeah. Tim worked for uh, probably a month corralling the cymbals. Yeah, Dan, Danny really liked to uh, lay into those cymbals, and they happened to be louder, much louder than the tom-tom fills were. And it did not sound like the drum, the tom-toms were actually close-miked. By the time we were done with it, they sounded close-miked, and the cymbals were turned down and put into a, a balance with the rest of the, the drum kit and the whole band. It yeah. is much more musical. Uh, but it took some major feats of uh, engineering no, to make that happen. Wasn't the bass drum on the same track as the bass guitar? No, that actually happened on several songs from the original CTA album. Oh, oh, oh okay. Yeah. I'm, that, I get uh, easily confused. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there were several shows on Carnegie Hall where they attempted to do a, a pseudo uh, stereo organ, the Hammond B3, by miking the top of the Leslie speaker spinning around and the bass speaker in the bottom separately and they merged that lower Leslie speaker with Terry Kath's guitar track <laughs> so that that would be over on the right side and then the, the upper B3 track would be over on the right. on the left side to create a pseudo stereo effect for, for the B3 but that only occurred on uh, one or two of the shows as I recall from working with all of this material, it seems to me that there were actually multiple engineers working this recording. And on different nights, you would have different engineers with different techniques. And so we encountered, you know, all kinds yeah. of... Different- I don't remember being aware of engineers changing out from night to night. We just, you know, we'd just show up and play. Yeah. You know, the kind of condition we were in at the time. <laughs> <laughs> when this original LP was released on October 21st, 71, it went gold within two weeks. So we were shocked. Were you really? Why were you shocked? Because we didn't think it sounded that good. 
Is it true that you didn't really want it released when you heard the mixes? Correct. And, you know, we're musicians. What do we know? Well, you know, <laughs> it's just a quick side story here. Jerry Garcia once said that he got off stage one night, was so mad that he actually literally got in a fight with Phil Lesh, the bass player, threw him down a flight of stairs. It was the only time they'd ever been physical. And they were so mad. He was so mad about the way that he thought the show came off. Later listened to that show and it was so brilliant that they used it for a recording. So he said, I'm never going to listen to the way I think about a show again. There you go. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. a, ex exactly my point. We're musicians, so don't listen to us. <laughs> Are there any funny stories that you can tell us about that run of shows? Do you remember any funny things happening or any good stories from that? To tell you the truth, I'm lucky that I, you know, was able to play the parts every night by myself. And, you know, just I was trying to keep up with everybody. I, that's, I, I remember thinking that when, you know, during that period of time, I was just, you know, sort of hanging on for dear life. At least that's what I thought. Yeah. But, what, you know, hear it back and we went through this whole thing. I realized I was way off like uh, Jerry Garcia. Yeah. You know, way off. We played really good. We had a hell of a lot of energy. When you listen to this stuff, you will feel like you're sitting inside of Carnegie Hall listening to the band. That's amazing. Well, you know, Jimi Hendrix has that famous quote where he says he thought your horn section, you guys sounded like one set of lungs. Right. Was it always this way for you guys? When you started playing together, was it one of those things like, ah, light from the heavens and it just came together? Or was that just battle tested because you played so much together? Yeah, it was on the job playing. Yeah. Training, playing, however it is get used to how someone else plays and phrases. And even though someone says, okay, we're going to, we're going to scoop on this note. When, when you get there, you know, already that by the time we get there, he's going to do it a little bit different. And I usually did exactly what Jimmy did. And because he didn't even understand, he wasn't going to do what he said. <laughs> and, and that's what, you know, you're talking about, the, you know, like one mind, it was guesswork. But we were a lot of times correct at where, where each one of us was going. Yeah, eventually, I bet you, you start to see patterns in somebody's playing and you can kind of intuitively think where they're going to go. Exactly. Yeah. And then when, it got, when we started doing overdubbing, we would get used to, uh, you know, I would play it one way and then I'd be able to mimic that on the second track with a different note. So it'd be like, a, you know, basically a trumpet section of, of two. And, uh, you know, we did the same thing with, 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 you know, saxophone and trombone. Yeah. And and then many times Jimmy would play a, a pedal. Meaning low notes. Oh, yeah. Meaning low notes. notes. Yes. Not just one set of lungs, but one set of synapses. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, yeah. No, because you're thinking a lot. You have to think alike to play alike, don't you? Did you guys do any overdubs for the original Carnegie Hall release? Did, were there any fixes? No, we did not. We just, it was just three horns, wasn't it? Yeah, there were no overdubs for the horns. There was one spot in the entire week that had to be fixed back in the studio that, right. uh, that CBS had, that had repaired in, in 71, which was questions. The, the piano uh, during the show had a shorted mic cable uh. on. And so the short was intermittent. It would come in and, and go. You know, it was, you never knew when it was going to happen. And when it did, you'd lose all the bass on the piano. It would, it would sound very, very thin and very distant. And then it would come back again. So in, in our mix, we worked out a way to compensate for that. But on the song Questions 67, 68, it was only performed once in the entire week. And so apparently this technical glitch happened on the piano. And of course they didn't have the tools to be able to repair that in 1971. So they had to go back in the studio and have Robert replay the piano part to have a solid piano all the way through the song. Well, I think that's a testament to how tight and how great of a band you guys are is that there were no overdubs. I mean, right. I don't think most people realize that most live albums have some kind of fixes or overdubs. And the only reason that you had to go in and do a fix was because there was a technical problem. It wasn't a performance issue. Oh, there is in my mind so deeply. 
Did you write set lists back then or did you get up and somebody would just call one out? We wrote set lists. Yeah. And they changed every night. So we just, we would decide before we went on what we were going to play. Very difficult to, to change the set list nowadays. You can't do that with, with all the production that is available with the, the lighting. Everything is uh, computerized. You know which light is going to go on, which mic you're going to be at, and all of that stuff. And mm-hmm. if you change that, you got to tell everyone. Right. So if you guys go out and tour now, you're pretty much going to play the same show, show to show? Yeah, yeah, we work out the show so that is is um, is ups and downs within the show, and then come through a, a rousing finish at the end. And then hopefully everyone is just jumping up and down, enjoying themselves. Yeah, we we set it up beforehand, and then do any tweaks we have to as as we go through it in in, in live performance. Something doesn't work, you take it out and put something in that does. Yeah. When you were deciding, going through the recordings, listening to the tracks, how did you choose which songs went on the original release? I don't think we were involved in choosing that. Mm-hmm. The, the producer did that, yeah. producer and engineer. Because yeah. we, we went right back on the road. Right. The next mm-hmm. day, we were flying back to California and played mm-hmm. shows either the, the night after or the next night. Because we had to have, the crew had to be able to get back to where the next show was and set it up before we got there. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that whoever did the choosing, it was a tough task because it wasn't like going through and finding like a good version of this song or a a better version of that song because all of these versions are cracking. You guys were on fire. There isn't a bad take on this set. There's 16 CDs of fantastic, just early era Chicago. The the fans are going to freak out when they hear this. For sure. It's so high energy and you really feel the the power and the energy of the band coming off the stage now, which really didn't translate off the vinyl. Uh, But now it's huge. It's uh, astonishing because you really hear how on fire they really were. Do you think you were able to build a better stereo image for this recording, this re-release? We were able to create... uh, profoundly better image in, in all aspects, not just the stereo soundstage, but in all of the, the minute detail of each instrument. Probably the biggest piece that sticks out is the, uh, you know, the, the legacy of the original horn sound on the album, which Jimmy is infamously quoted as saying sounded like kazoos on the original album. And that is because there was so much onstage mic leakage that they had to roll off all the low frequencies on the horn mics to try to minimize all of that leakage. But the actual recording of the horns on tape is flat and sounds like real horns. It's really rich. They, they sound beautiful. And we were able to sculpt the horns so that that sound comes through this uh, new recording. So you have, in some cases, it sounds like big band brass. It does, they right. have full power. It's, it's really amazing. And it's just three guys. I, I was often amazed. Are you sure that's only three? Yeah. It was <laughs> it's only three of us. In fact, Jimmy Panko sat here and listened the first time. He was shocked at how great it sounded. Wow. And he, he said the same thing. That was just three of us, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I remember it was. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you had seven guys on stage, you know, three horns, drums, bass, guitar, and keyboards. And it sounded like, that's you know, for a rock band, that's a good-sized rock band. It's not a huge rock band, but it's a good-sized rock band. But it sounds like there's twice as many people on stage. And I yeah. think that's just your energy. You guys played with such enthusiasm that it just really sounded larger than life. We must have been doing something, right? Well, you certainly were, sir. So the tapes were transferred before you got the recordings. You didn't do the tape transfer. Is that correct? Warner Brothers did the tape transfer uh, at their uh, facility in L.A. When they transferred the recordings, they had locked their interfaces to something called an atomic clock, uh, which is built by a company uh, called Antelope Audio out of Bulgaria. And it is uh, a very, very state-of-the-art, high-quality digital clock that enables digital audio interfaces to sound analog, to sound very rich, uh, like a tape recorder. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
it makes the instrument sound uh, organic as opposed to sounding like old recordings. So they used that clock. And we knew on the back end that once we were done with these mixes, we would hand them off to Bob Ludwig's facility, uh, Gateway Mastering, to do the uh, finalizing with Adam Ion. And they also used the atomic clock on the mastering end. So we acquired an atomic clock here for the studio and did all the mixes locked to that thing so that every stage of the project would have that, that quality. This thing is accurate to one second over a period of a thousand years. <laughs> wow. But we had plenty of other issues to deal with. It was really like an audio game of whack-a-mole. And uh, we certainly played, played hard. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about that for a second. What was something that, I mean, you probably have a, a, a toolbox where you go, okay, if this is happening, I know how to do this. What was mm -hmm. something that you came across where you had to figure it out from scratch that you hadn't come across yet? Okay, well, we do have a lot of restoration tools here that we use that are some of the most powerful restoration tools that, that any facility can bring to bear. But uh, I mentioned earlier that there was a short in the mic line on the piano. Yeah. And so it was a short to ground, which compromised the shielding on that mic line and made it susceptible to RF interference which in the case of Carnegie Hall sounded like thousands of clicks per second that would bleed in on occasion into the piano mic. So we would get this really nasty static and the restoration tools that we have could not take that out automatically. And so Lee and I, on uh, I think it was Color My World, wasn't it? On, was, on one yes. show, we had a lot of this static happening Lee and I both worked on the same song, uh, I here in the studio, and he also took it home and worked on it on his own Pro Tools system at home. We literally had to use a graphic tablet and a pen to manually draw out every single spike that each click of the static oh meant. Okay? Yeah. It took a week for the two of us to clean up Color My World, just that one song. I would make the mistake of like um, because you had to zero in right right down to where you could see only the sound line that you were working on. And when you backed out of it again to see where you were, you know, I would go, I'm not doing this anymore because I've only gone a few <laughs> seconds and I've been working on it for three hours. <laughs> three yeah. hours to do a couple <laughs> of seconds, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And the piano itself, the sound of the piano. Uh, the microphone was not very close to the piano, so there was a lot of band leakage into that microphone, and it made the piano sound pretty thin and distant. And so our job was to make that piano sound bold and in your face and mm -hmm. uh, hear the resonance of the wood. And between the tools that we brought to bear on it and also the mastering process that Adam Ian did on it, uh, that piano sounds gorgeous now. It's, yeah. uh, it's very powerful, but it had to be completely transformed in order to work in the context of everything else that we have done to elevate uh, every single show. And that's without changing anything else other than the sound mm -hmm. of it, enhancing the sound. Right. Wow. Just getting it down to the pure essence of each instrument. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And of course, one of the things that really helped with all of that is this console that we're sitting in front of, which is a, a classic solid state logic console. This is a 4000G series. Uh, in fact, this board used to belong to Babyface at one time. This didn't exist in 1971. Yeah. And it is known as one of the most powerful triage tools on the planet <laughs> in terms of saving questionable Hell? audio. Yeah. <laughs> so we were able to do some really powerful sculpting with this board 
to elevate the sound of every single instrument. Yeah. Tim, do you, is there any track on this set that you're really most proud of all the work you had to do at, and it, you're just, you listen to it and you're like, man, I can't believe that's so night and day from the original. Well, they're all very consistent from the first show to the last, which was a real bear for a lot of reasons to create that consistency from show to show. But on each show, there's one song that's unique to that show that the band only performed, you know, once during during the course of the whole six day set. Right. And one that really stands out for me is Elegy which oh, right. was performed, I believe, on the second show. Yeah, we only did it one time. It was only performed once, and, the, and it starts out with just the solo brass, and it is just gorgeous. shows off what we have done to elevate the sound of the brass throughout the, the entire collection, but it is just magnificent. So that would be one of my top tracks. I agree with, with Tim on Elegy because it blew me away that it was just the, <laughs> the three of us that pulled that off. Uh, you know, I had no idea that it would sound that good. It, you know, my my thought was, uh, you know, I screwed up here. I made all these mistakes, all this other stuff. And when I listened to it, I went, shit, man, relax. You played pretty damn good yeah. the, for the entire six days, as well as everybody else in the band. We were just going with the flow, playing with each other. And as things moved, everybody went with it wherever it was going. That's where we went. And uh, it came out sounding pretty damn good. Well, I think too, with your band, it wasn't just the horns that were one mind. I think that right. the whole band was that way. You guys really could turn on a dime as a seven piece outfit. I remember when we were playing the clubs and <laughs> for some reason we would, uh, we would get lost. Somebody would go to the bridge when they were supposed to be in the second verse. Mm -hmm. And it would sound like, you know, somebody playing, with their elbows on the keyboard. <laughs> it was just total cacophony of sound. And Terry would at, at one point just sort of whistle. We'd go one, two, three, four, and boom, we were into the bridge hmm. or whatever section. He said, okay, we're going second verse, bang, and we're in. Yeah. And it, everything would straighten out. We'd finish off the song. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't stop because <laughs> we screwed up. <laughs> Well, speaking of Terry, I think there's so many fabulous examples of his brilliance as a guitar player on this set. Listening yes. back to it, was there anything that you heard that Terry did, any of these performances that really stood out in your mind, Lee? It just the fact that he was able to do something different every night. I mean, he played a lot of the same licks, and, you know, as he, Jimi Hendrix, any of the greatest guitar players or instrumentalists, they always get tired of how much they do over and over again, but they all have the ability to change from night to night what it is that they do yeah. without them even knowing that that's what they're doing a lot of times. And I think that's what, that's what Terry was able to do and what it shows with this package. Terry really never played the same thing twice, right? Yeah. He was always shaking it up and, uh, it's it's really fabulous because you you'll hear some of the same songs from night to night, but he plays completely different solos, completely different energy, different rhythms, mm -hmm. different it's, rhythms. It's unbelievable. He had man. some really badass funk stuff that he played <laughs> on some of that stuff that I had never heard him do before. Right. You know, it sounded like contemporary funk, you know, that yeah. he, he was playing way back then. Yeah. Any performances in particular, Tim, that stand out in your mind? Well, so many of his ex extended jams, South California Purples, pretty much any of them. There are a number of versions of that in this collection.
sets, the hour and the shower, that only occurs once right. in the entire right. set. So that's another one that, that stands out for me with Terry. And, and people from the audience and various other shows were always shouting out, Hour in the shower! And, and Terry would go, I, you know, I don't know if we're doing that one tonight. I don't think we're going to do that one tonight. And then, but stick around, come back, and, you know, we might do it tomorrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you end up doing it once, and, you know, and you can't get away with that now. You know, you either yeah. do the song or people stand up and leave or throw something yeah. at you. Right? In your mind, what was it about a song that made it, an every show song versus a once in a while song. Well, one thing was it being a hit. You know, we played beginnings every night, every show. We played um, uh, Does Anybody Really Know What Time It Is every night, every show. We played 25 or 6 to 4 every night, every show. <laughs> you know, but they were, they were different versions than what we do now. With the songs were still, even though they were hits and we had been moving them along, they were still what I considered in development. And from night to night, we would do something a little bit different, even with the brass, even though the brass arrangement was set pretty much in stone, we could change something before the show that was different from the last night or the last tour even, and just add something to it where it wasn't there before. So yeah. we were always trying to develop the songs, I think. When you talk about 25 or 6 to 4, I think that goes back to talking about Terry's kind of large guitar vocabulary. I don't think he played riffs. He played music. You know what I mean? It just flowed out of him. And that song in particular for me, because he plays so ferociously, he just had the ability to go and go and he wouldn't repeat himself. I find that fascinating. He played on lighter strings and he used, I think, two, two A strings or two B strings instead of, instead of a B and an E. He would use another B string so so he could stretch the 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 the, uh, the bottom string all the way up to the top of the neck. Mm, wow! And sometimes he would he would break a string during the course of a solo and still manage to play the solo somewhat in tune, some semblance of <laughs> organization of yeah. sound. You know, yeah. it was yeah uncanny how he could do that. Yeah, Terry played constantly too. He rehearsed yeah. constantly. He would play for hours every day when when they weren't on stage. So his calluses, his muscles, everything yeah. was, you know, just just uh, yeah. he was a monster. Yeah. It was amazing how strong he was. Yeah. Did he ever talk to Lee about like some of his influences? Do you know who some of his favorite guitar players were? Barney Kessel and. Um, you know, various jazz guys. He learned a bunch of chords from them. He took took uh, a few lessons from some uh, a jazz guy in in Chicago, uh, just to learn more more chords. He was always practicing and, and learning. I mean, the best players always do that. Yeah, they never they never stop. They right. just keep going. Well, that's the great thing about music, isn't it? It's a bottomless well. You'd never find the bottom of it. Just, I never thought we'd be talking now all of this time later, and I get to do this for a living. Yeah. I mean, how wonderful is that? Well, speaking of that, what are your guys' plans, COVID notwithstanding, for uh, touring? We are back out touring now. We started back out June 23rd in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, and we've been going across the country since then, opening buildings for the first time since the pandemic started. Wow. And, and closed everything down, closed the entire world down. We are now reopening the venues. <laughs> People are ecstatic to be able to be out with one another again and listening to live music. Really cool. It has to feel great to get back on stage. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, initially when we played the first couple shows, it was, I, I had to equate it like a, like a, a ball player coming back from an, from an injury when they come in and they're, you know, the air isn't quite, what they want yet in their legs and they, they can't really jump as high. They feel like the game is going a little bit faster than they are. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the second or third day, it starts slowing down again and you get into the groove and then you, mm -hmm. you know, you're back. 
Yeah. Well, this piece, Chicago Carnegie Hall Complete, it is certainly going to be a fan favorite. And for those Chicago fans out there that you really know, they know just about everything about you guys because you have some of the most diehard fans in the business. There's no doubt about that. (laughs) Um, What do you hope they find in this new extensive box set? Well, they're going to find that how great Terry Kath was, first of all, as far as a soloist. Amen. And how well the band played together even back then. And, you know, it's a live performance and we just let it all hang out every night. Mm-hmm. It, it shocked me how good it is. Yeah. It takes some doing to shock me. As <laughs> <laughs> I hear it every night, I'm, I'm too close to it. <laughs> yeah, right. This is a true live document of Chicago at the height of their powers. It absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say one of the surprises for me that I, I really enjoyed delightfully was Peter Cetera's bass playing throughout all these shows. Yeah, totally. Uh, because it is in this new set, it's so clear and it's so melodic. He's all over the neck on the bass. He's not just holding down the bottom. Right. It's very similar to actually the way that Paul McCartney would play with the Beatles and that it is so melodic. Uh, he gave himself a lot of leeway. And um, like Terry, he played differently every night. He never plays the same song the same way twice. And so that was, uh, it was delightful to, to have that kind of uh, you know, variety from night to night coming mm-hmm. from, from Peter. Yeah, well, that keeps it exciting for you guys too, doesn't it? Because it fresh. Yeah. yeah, exactly. More musical. Yeah. You're not playing a written part. You actually get to create on stage within a song. And back then it was a lot harder for us to hear each other because the, you know, the monitors, there, there was never a time I remember when somebody said, turn my monitor down. Right. It was always up because yeah. they always wanted to hear more of themselves. Right. So I got to the point where I stopped listening to the monitors and put, I, I, before earplugs, I put uh, cigarette filters in my ears so I didn't lose my hearing in the process. And uh, so I would hear my monitor was like in between my ears. Oh, yeah. Right yeah, it was, it was pretty. I, it didn't sound as good as I wanted it to, but I could hear better and play better in tune. Yeah. Now it's easy because everybody has in ears. You get your own personal mix and it sounds wonderful. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even even with the in-ears from night to night, every room sounds different. So even with the in-ears, it changes a little bit, but it's basically the same every night now. Yeah. So it's much, much better. Yeah. Gear improvements have really enabled a lot, including the restoration of this set. I mean, it wouldn't have been possible without the advancements in recording technology. And Tim, you've done a wonderful job on this. So thank you. Thank you. We had no timeline on this because there were so many issues. It couldn't be predicted how long it would take to deliver the actual masters. And so Rhino Records was was very patient with us to let us uh just polish everything up as fine as we could possibly get it without the the pressure of having to deliver by a certain date. I think initially we did have a deadline, but we realized that it was not realistic at all. We weren't going to hit the deadline within, within probably six months. Right. Easy. Every show had different technical issues that we had to deal with. They were not predictable. They would just come up as we were working. We would discover something new that we had to fix along the way. And so uh, we really couldn't put a timeline on how long it would take to wrestle all those alligators uh, and and present this in the best way possible. And so I'm really thankful to Rhino Records and Mike Angstrom for giving us all of the the flexibility that we needed to dial this all in. So thank you, all you guys and girls at Rhino Warner. Yeah. Best crew in the business, I'll tell you what. So the answer to the question, what did you do during lockdown for Tim Jessup and Lee Lochnane is they restored Chicago Carnegie Hall complete. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you. You are welcome. It was a a labor of love for both of us. Yes, it was. It was an honor.
That is, of course, Terry Kath on lead guitar right there on 25 or 6 to 4. That is from the new Chicago at Carnegie Hall complete box set. It's available as of September 10th exclusively at rhino.com. Like Lee said, Chicago is back out on the road, and you can find all of their upcoming tour dates at chicagotheband.com. Thanks again to Lee Lochnane and Tim Jessup. Take care, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Rhino Podcast. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino Podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.